0: At 252 pounds, he is indeed the wrestler who made Milwaukee famous, the one, the only, the crusher out of Paradise Valley, Arizona. At 268 pounds, the superstar, Billy Graham. For the all-time great superstar wrestling weighing 322 pounds, Larry. The and Pantura! B, that's Mr. B, you announce me, oh. it's Mr. B. Your thoughts, man dog. <laughs> all the and all power following football, here is Wahoo McDaniel, From Manchester, England, the British heavyweight wrestling champion, the man of a thousand and one holes, the great Billy Robinson. Weighing 251 pounds from San Francisco, California, he is Ray the Clipper, Steven! From Beverly Hills, California, weighing in at 248 at pounds, the world's heavyweight wrestling champion, Nick McClickoff! I tell you, of all the years that I have wrestled, through the amateurs and through the pros... This is my last one. Ha, I think Bird Gaya got, got his chance. it's took full it. advantage of it. Bird Gaya, and he isn't done yet. What I'd like to have right now. Where the big boys play. This is where the big boys play, huh? This is where the big boys play.
1: You're listening to Where the Big Boys Play. This is the third and final part of the awa special
2: this podcast is a member of the place to be nation family visit us at place to be your pop culture home
1: okay um well just before we uh talk about um uh Bockwinkel, i did want to do a little um thing on what i've called revelations here i, I guess we've uh, there are lots of other workers that we could talk about like for example uh <laughs> dylan you've probably written and talked more about ken patera than you human being in history um, I guess we haven't talked about Ken Patera but you've probably got about six hours on, uh, six hours of audio worth of uh, Patera right so, out there uh,
2: Very much and probably well I don't want to say definitely more coming but possibly more coming
1: <laughs> Okay so I mean th- 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 there are other workers uh, that, that we could have talked about but I just want to uh, talk about a couple of like, the, the less talked about guys um, kind of like Under the radar type people, Um, and the first one I wanted to mention was Colonel De Beers, Uh, like as a guy, as a guy.
3: You
1: said that. Yeah, I mean, he was a guy. I came into the set with no real uh, preconceptions of. I didn't really hear anybody talking about him. Uh, What were your memories and uh, thoughts on uh, De Beers, Ryan? Actually, I could
3: go over this and unfortunately i gotta run before we get to talk about bachwinco which kills me but (laughs) anyway um i will say in close my closing thing with the beers is for all the knack the awa gets for being behind the times not looking good blah 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 he was like the most hardcore racist i'd ever seen in 1986 (laughs) on television like it did it shocked me it was like wow out of all these people you know being all you know wrestling proper you have this guy out there like basically calling names and. Just his whole, his interviews were incredible at the time. You couldn't even do those on television today. You'd have every committee in the world after you. His stuff about not wrestling Snuka because of the color of his skin. And I mean, that whole character just came out of left field for me with Vern and the way the AWA was run, honestly. For him, for me, it was just, it was amazing. I wasn't a big fan of his work as a wrestler in the AWA as much as I am of what I'm seeing more and more of him in Portland. But the character itself was just Awesome.
1: Awesome. It would, I, I actually thought he was pretty good in the ring as well, though. Like, he like for a guy that I just had no expectations of at all, I thought he was it, very It solid. might have been who
3: he was with, too. I mean, he was paired with a really young Scott Hall, and then most of the time him and Snuka, who was 86 Snuka, wasn't 82 Snuka.
1: Right. It, it,
2: uh, and actually, you guys didn't even see his best stuff. Brian actually probably seen some of his best stuff, because uh, the beers at his best was really squash match. I mean, during, during that period... Uh, You know, when they were in the showboat, I would actually say De Beers was like the AWA version of the Samoan SWAT team. (laughs) I mean, he was really good. And he's He's like three or four minute squash matches. Really good at him. Um, You know, I agree with Parv that uh, he kind of jumped out at me, too. And there was stuff like there was a Derek, the famous Derek Dukes match from the Windy City Showdown. We didn't include because we couldn't get into very good video quality. But in hindsight, I wish we had included it. I think it probably should have made the set. That's probably my lone regret in terms of a match that we left off the set. But De Beers, to me, was as Ed Wiskowski in Portland, yes, he was much better. I think that's fair to say. But the De Beers character, like Brian said, was awesome and totally and unbelievable, really. Uh, uh, but I, I agree with Parv that I thought he was actually really good as a worker in the AWA, too. Yeah,
1: and d- just before I... You, you come in on this, Chad. Uh, but Brian, do you need to go? I unfortunately do. Yeah, I have a commitment with my kid here this afternoon. So Do, do you have any closing thoughts for us? And uh, then uh, the three of us will wrap up.
3: I, I honestly would say um, thank you guys for having a blast. Doing this. It was great to get back on the air again. And I look forward to doing as many of these as I possibly can with anybody in the future. Um, and, and basically, in closing, the AWA, for a lot of the knocking, I'm really, really glad over the last year to see that it's starting to get a lot more credit popularity and people are starting to enjoy it instead of just thinking it was that boring Midwestern promotion.
1: All right. Well, 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 thanks a lot for coming back on, uh, Brian. And, uh, you know, uh, you're always welcome back on this show.
3: I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Chad. Thanks a lot, Dylan. Have a great day guys. All right. Yeah. See, see you, Brian. Yeah. Peace out. Co-
1: Colonel De Beers, Chad.
4: Yeah. I, I like, but De Beers a lot. Um, I think the thing that, sort of made him stick out a little bit was the fact of the character he was playing. I do think that helped him a lot because you didn't really get sort of, uh, I mean, I guess I could say that the character he was playing wouldn't look uncommon in like WWF. And that's not something I really associate a lot with the AWA, uh, stuff and characters that they had,
1: but but they would WF would never have dared to do that character. Right? No, I don't think it's extreme. Uh, well, I mean who knows but <laughs> I, I, I haven't watched the extras yet I'm that's one of the things I'm looking forward to because I saw oh, let
2: me tell you there's a there's a promo where he starts making I mean like I'm not I'm not joking he literally starts talking about how uh, you know America America's this heathen country and it's awful and runs you know sort of your typical heelish stuff and then as a way of making this point he talks about how there's no AIDS in South Africa. <laughs> Now,
5: Sorry, can you besides,
2: besides the sort of perverse comedy that, that, that exists within that statement, can you imagine Vince actually say, allowing that to go on the air?
1: Uh, not all, no, 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 no Not now, not then, not ever. <gasps> yes.
0: Fellow <laughs> yes. from South Africa, two hundred and sixty-five, Colonel De Beers. Controversial, there's no doubt about it, but a great wrestler, no doubt about that either. What is this? I don't want to know. Sizing him up. Well, we all know the political feelings of Colonel De And his opponent, from Samoa. 250 pounds, Jimmy Superfly Snooker. promotion, because of my political beliefs, I will not wrestle a black man. That is the way I feel. This match will not take place. If they ever make this match, would you send me a telegram to Honolulu and I'll fly in just to see it.
5: Oh boy, I
0: will fly in from. anything. Now let's throw the politics out the window and get out of some serious wrestling. De Beers leaving the ring. Now what's this all about? I purposely stepped out of the ring. That is a charitable, a charitable thing on my part. I mean, the man has probably got ten children at home, two elsewhere, a large car to feed gas into, and probably has a gambling habit.
5: (laughs) South
0: Africa, we don't compete against a black man. Look at that. From one of these days, you will feel the wrath of the curl, I guarantee it. He's climbing up. He's going for the big one. Outside the ring, up on the top turnbuckle. puzzle, this his head. Colonel DeVir! Try it by God! Colonel De shoved him. He's got no up. He slides his head face first. Africans, and they have their ways.
1: Also, South Africans have their ways. Let's uh, pick another worker here. Um, Pete? Peter?
6: Uh, let's see. Who, who can I pick that will improve on uh, Big John Stud? Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to make another dark horse pick, actually, because he's another guy who got... Um, Quite a lot of hype uh, going into the set, who was always an under-the-radar guy.
1: Can can I just Uh, stop you here? If you say Kamala, I'm vetoing it. I'm
6: not going to say Kamala. (laughs) Uh, I really like that match, though. I really, really liked it. Cowboy Um, Lang. No. no, um, Not (laughs) with Tokyo either. Let's talk about uh, Colonel De Beers some. He's going to be the one guy I'm going to rate as a disappointment on this set. Now, I had never... Given about more than five seconds thought to Colonel De Beers uh, before the set was announced. Um, I never was a fan of the gimmick. Um, I just thought it was uh, a desperation uh, move by a dying company. But he got some hype as a really good worker and a good squash match worker going into the set that had me wanting to know. Wanting to, I was looking forward to uh, revisiting him. And he. he he had the OK match with Zumhoff. He had the match with Snuka, which was good until maybe the worst ending on the set. But um, for these 80 sets, they've always had a stock going up and stock going down. And um, no one on this set really qualified to me as a guy who had stock went down. The um, Beers would be the closest one for me. Um, I didn't think he was very good on the mic. Um, he had a chance to try to cut loose um some pro apartheid racist promos and he didn't sound like he was very committed to the gimmick and yeah he would not have stood out in uh 1982 awa he only stood out because of the promotions uh roster was was decaying
1: Contra- controversial opinion here on the awa special pete do you go <laughs> along with that sure i mean I think,
6: yeah i'm gonna
4: go on with uh, what peter said i uh well, I, I from when I was I was kind of excited going into this. I wanted to see more of his work because I, uh, watching him in Portland, I thought he was a real solid worker, and I thought he he benefited by working, getting to work against like Martel and working with Buddy Rose, fighting against Piper, those type of guys. And then to uh, see here, I, most of the matches they just didn't resonate with me. Like I didn't like the Sergeant Slaughter Colonel De Beers match. I don't want to say it sucked, but it just. Uh, if it never made, if I never saw it, I could definitely sleep better at night. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the, like like Pete, Peter said about the Snooker finish, yeah, I didn't like that match. Um, so he, he just really didn't do anything for me on this set.
6: the high The highest ranked the beers match I have is seventy three, which is the Bockwinkle uh, time limit draw, and you know it's seventy three. It's an average match, but that's that's where he peaked out at. What wow. date that?
1: Any comments, Chad? I'm a little surprised. Uh,
4: the, the date on the Bachwinkle match is 41786. Okay. Um, and I, I actually have that one ranked 42. Um, I think, as we discussed with the Beers, <laughs> I think I liked him better than Peter and Shoe uh, both. But he is not someone that I would, uh, again, I don't think I'd call him a breakout candidate for the set. I did kind of enjoy, as we'll discuss later, his promos on a uh, widely inappropriate basis, I guess you could yeah. say, but, uh, but I mean, that snook a match. I mean that, I think that's a pretty brutal match. I have that match at 146 and that probably features the worst finish maybe on the set. And we're talking about the eighties. So if it's a bad finish, Within the context of an 80s, it's uh, it's a pretty bad finish all around because I'm not a guy that necessarily thinks if you start tumbling to the outside and brawling through the crowd for a double count out, that's the worst finish in the world. Uh, that glove on the pole match was just awful, uh, the finish. Uh,
6: this is sort of a tangent, but I have been meaning to bring this up. If there's one weakness to the AWA style as a whole, it's that the finishes are genuinely, generally not that good, not really that creative. Um. Up until eighty six, eighty seven, when they get some more variety in. Basically, anytime a heel wins, it's because the referee is distracted and either their tag partner or manager hits the baby face from behind. There are some really mind-blowingly awful finishes. Um, the, the Coal Miners glove match that we've talked about and that Martel-Zukov uh, cage match, which which don't really help the heel and they don't get the baby face over either. So it's just, what's the point? Right. And uh, that's that's the one thing about the style that I really don't like, is that the the finishes, not a great uh, territory for finishes, I don't think. There are some good ones, uh, like the, the I love the roll of coin stuff with uh, Hennig and with uh, Bockwinkel, mm-hmm. but that's mostly later on.
1: Yeah, so I think what I'll do is, uh, I'm going to... Um... I'll, I'll, I'll move this bit on Colonel De Beers over to where Dylan and I are raving about him. It'll be an interesting contrast.
5: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Chow, were there any like, uh, kind of, uh, I, I suppose, I suppose I kind of stole the, uh, the, the big cherry there, De Beers, uh, right off the bat, but, uh, Were there any kind of other revelations on this set for you in terms of guys who just came out of left field? Um, I think we've mostly talked about a ton of them.
4: Uh, I can't really think of anyone right offhand. I mean, Jim Brunzel, I think, was very good on this set. We talked a little bit about the High Flyers, but uh, I really liked his singles match on the... uh, the first desk, I think. And he, he had some fun stuff. He's a guy i would never really paid attention to, but I liked his stuff on this set.
1: Oh, well, I have one more, but I'm going to uh, give uh, Dylan a chance to, get, to make a pick as well.
2: I do want to just uh, follow up a little bit on what Chad just said and say that Brunzel really is a revelation because he's a guy that never gets talked about. He's uh, like true. a guy who is like, maybe people begrudgingly would have said the best guy and like the fourth best babyface tag team in the WWF.
5: <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, like,
2: right. And he really comes across as a guy who could really work, uh, and was awfully good. So, uh, and could really brawl. I mean, he was a good brawler. That's I think maybe the the biggest shock is that in those matches where he was called upon to really throw fists. I mean, it's not really surprising that he could you know work the mat and had a good drop kick and all that. But the fact that he could go in there and trade stiff punches with the Sheiks and Adnan and these guys, I think that's probably the most surprising thing about him. But I'm going to, this is kind of a weird pick because I don't really think this is a revelation in the sense that we all know he's an all-time great wrestler, but I think Stan Hansen, it would be wrong not to mention him right? because uh, even though his run was kind of ridiculous uh, and it ended, you know, so absurdly with him running over the AWA title with a tractor or whatever, (laughs) um, (laughs) I I think... uh, You know, one of the knocks, and maybe this isn't a knock, but maybe one of the things you often hear about Hanson is, well, yeah, he was great, but everything that was really great was in Japan. Well, I think between this and the Puerto Rican uh, wrestling stuff that I've watched in the last, you know, several months, I think we can put that talking point to rest because uh, he was quite good in the AWA. I mean, he was around for really less than a year, and uh, virtually everything he was involved with in his time period there. I mean, to me, if you want to talk about a guy whose average ranking will probably pre- be pretty good on my ballot, Hanson is going to be up there. I mean, his average match that he was in is going to do really well on my ballot.
5: Yeah.
2: Uh, his, you know, whatever, however you want to define that metric. he, he, he Everything he was in on this set was really enjoyable. And he was actually in the match that I think is the second best match on the set, too, on top of that. So, um, to me, for a guy who was there just for a blip, he was awfully good. And I think it puts to rest any notion that
1: he was only a great wrestler in Japan. Yeah, I mean, for me, I don't know what you think, Chad, but, uh, you know, you, you and I both watched the uh, the All Japan set, which, which has got like a, just a shit ton of great, great Stan Hansen stuff on it. And for me, a lot of his stuff, like I was really looking forward to the Sergeant Slaughter Hansen stuff. And while that stuff is very, very solid Dylan, and I'm not going to say it's not, um, pretty much everything Hansen did on this set probably got like a B plus rating for me. Uh, whereas, re- like, coming off the All Japan set, I'd really be hoping for like Slaughter Hansen to be like a, a star, five star, you know, a five star affair type thing. Um, any thoughts, Chen? um i
4: like him a lot on this set he's in my uh, and actually another guy that i could put as a revelation is uh, a match him versus vader leon white from a uh, three through 1386 that's my number five match on the whole set uh i thought wow, i mean I, I knew vader was i mean vader up to a couple years ago i thought was somebody that kind of came on the scene in 1992 and got really good all of a sudden. Now I've seen a lot of his New Japan stuff from the late 80s, early 90s, and uh, that sort of brought that time window back a little bit. But now here we are at the very beginning of 1986, and I thought that was just a fabulous match with him and uh, Hanson. And I also, in, his t- in the top 20, also have is the uh, second match versus Slaughter, the match versus Blackwell, and uh, right, my number twenty matches him versus Bachwinkle from four twenty eighty six. So those are uh, that's four Hanson matches I have in my top twenty, and that's not even including the uh, number two match that Dylan referenced, which is versus uh, Kurt Henning from five thirty one eighty six, which I have in my top thirty. So I, I thought he has a uh, he has a very good average on my set, and I can't say I was disappointing
1: with his stuff on the set. Right. Okay. Well, I was like, I I'm not. I want to say I was disappointed because I actively enjoyed everything he did. Um, it's just that like, I don't know. Like in my mind, those slaughter matches should have been. Uh, well, well, expect tough. expectations are part of the set, right? I mean, and I, if you've yeah.
2: got in your mind that this guy's gonna, you know, kick you in the teeth, it's gonna be so great, and it doesn't quite reach that level. It, you know, I mean, that happens. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, that that's part of. And that's actually, honestly, one of the reasons I wanted to be involved in the AWA set when, when it was offered to me. I think uh, the theory was that I might decline it. <laughs>
5: right. But,
2: I, I, like, I was excited about it because of the fact that
1: I figured almost anything would be a revelation, you know? Right. I mean, I guess part of, part of, the, uh, part of the slaughter thing for me is that he's one guy who just, like, the final conflict performance blew me away from him and i really like his early wf like marquee matches you know the ones that everybody talks about are great so i'm kind of looking for any opportunity for slaughter to be like an all time level guy do, yep. do do you know what i mean and th- they didn't quite hit the hit the level that i was i was hoping for you know do do, do you know what i mean like they I, I
2: actually they're... agree with you i agree with you i i actually like um, I like the, the, I guess it's the handheld or the, the raw footage match between them, the best where slaughter comes to the ring and is actually fighting with his hat on, which I thought was hilarious. That, that is my favorite of their three matches, but I actually agree with your point, which is that, and I actually wrote this up in my original write ups which I still have saved. Um, I thought they danced very close to getting to great and never quite got there. Um, and I, I don't know if that's because the feud that they were working with. I mean, like the bunkhouse brawl probably could have been really great if it had been a few minutes longer, for example. There's a lot of stuff that limited them a little bit that I don't really think was their fault, which is part of the reason uh, why I, while I really uh, do agree with you in a weird way that they, I don't want to use the term disappointing, but they don't, didn't quite hit the point that I hoped they would. Right. I also, Still see them as net positives
1: for Hanson, if that makes sense. Uh, no, no, uh, absolutely. But I, I guess my point is that they're all matches in the four-star range, where I was I was really looking for like something on par with like you know, uh, I don't know, Han- like,
2: Hanson
1: tinroo Right, exactly. Yeah, uh, I got you. Uh, that said, uh, looking at my ranking, uh, looking at my ratings, I also put the I gave the Hanson Leon White match an A, which should guarantee it. Uh, at least a top fifteen finish, from what I can remember that there are there I've got a huge amount of matches on a minus which uh converts into something like uh four and a half or four and a quarter challenge and that's a talking point between us um like about four and a half and then i 've got like maybe two matches on a star and then there 's only a small amount of matches on a so um it 's perfectly possible that will be in my top ten as well and uh that match is all about for me Hansen like you can say i thought uh leon white is still pretty green at that point um which uh, makes the performance more about hansen than than about him for me not taking anything away from uh, leon white but it's clearly like uh you know a big plus uh from uh the point of view of uh, of hansen um my one last revelation i wanted to touch on uh and I I basically is a uh, Boris Zukoff. <laughs> I knew it. <laughs> now I say that Dylan right. Um how much crappy Zukoff did you see uh that didn't make the set?
2: <laughs> uh you know what not that much in fact there were two or three other Zukov matches that probably came pretty close. There was uh another zukov bockwinkle match that's not much worse than the one that made the set. Um, that very well could have, but were, we really saw no point in having two Boris Zukov-Nick Bockwinkle matches on the set. That would have been kind of silly. Um, and there was another Zukov-Martel match, uh, not in the cage, obviously, uh, which we all liked, thought was good uh, to one degree or another, but didn't quite make the cut. Um, there weren't a lot of Zukov matches that I thought were awful. Um, there were a lot of Zukov matches that I saw that might maybe would fit what you would expect the Zukov match to be, which was kind of just there. Yeah.
5: Um,
2: you know, uh, it's funny that you mentioned this, and I kind of knew this was coming because I saw something you wrote in the post the other day on one of the, on a PWO, I think, uh, about it. Um, but Zukov, when we were finishing up with the set, I said to uh, I said to Will, and I actually think I said this to Hawk too, and maybe even Chris, I said, how weird is it going to look when people look at how many... Zukov matches made this set, <laughs> yeah. like because he's got seven or eight matches, I think, that made the set, and you know you say oh, seven, eight out of 150, that's you know that's not that many, but it actually is <laughs> yeah, because yeah, is. Th- there are there are not that many people that cross the threshold of ten matches on the set. You know, we just talked about Hanson. Hanson doesn't have ten matches on the set,
5: no. so uh,
1: you know it, it is kind of. Shocking, just the amount of times he popped up. No, I, I, absolutely. And the, the the most shocking thing for me, uh, Dylan, was that, uh, like, Boris Zukov in WF is absolutely, like, the, the shit. Like, I, I, <laughs> and I, I haven't seen any evidence since, like, you know, in the past couple of years to change that perception. He is just crap. Um, you know, d- d- scraping the barrel rubbish. And uh anything better than that would have been a revelation for me and i don 't think i 've got any match of his uh ranked below like a b minus which is really surprising or like a c plus or whatever it is so um yeah i i couldn't i uh, i even didn't hate the kamala the Kamala match um it, i i probably have that one lower than uh, uh c plus but i even didn 't mind that so uh there is a Boris Zukov uh, is that uh, have I got that wrong? Who did Kamala wrestle? No, no,
2: no. Kamala wrestled uh, Blackwell and on the same show Zukov wrestled Slaughter. Oh that's the yeah, no,
1: no. The, So the Zukov slaughter that Zukov slot slaughter match. But Zukov
2: make... did wrestle Leon White, a very green Vader.
1: Right. Yeah. That's the big guy he has. That's that's not really uh, none of those matches are bad at all, and they're not it's they're not what I describe as total carry jobs. Zukov handles his end of things pretty well. Do you agree with that, Chad, from what you saw? Uh, yeah, I, th- I think he, I don't think anybody
4: here would say Zukov was one of the top five contenders for this set. But i what we saw, uh, again, like you, Parv, I was using the template of his WWF stuff, which was dreadful. So, I mean, for him to be adequate and not feel like he's totally getting carried in these matches was a revelation, and he held his own.
2: I thought he was serviceable. I mean, that would be like, the yeah. word I would use to describe him. I don't think, I mean, usually when I would use the term revelation, I would use it to describe somebody who actually jumps out of the pack as a good wrestler. But in the context of him being so terrible in the WWF, I do think that's probably a, a, a applicable term. <laughs> right,
5: because yeah. He, he
2: he is serviceable on this set. I mean, he and he's completely inoffensive. He even does some kind of interesting things. I sort of like his headbutt-based offense. Uh, You know, and actually there was a Boris Zukov versus Blackwell match that didn't make the set that might have made the set uh, if I didn't object to the fact that Blackwell won the Battle of the Headbutts.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I I guess those are the small sort of, uh, I mean, (laughs) I I do have a bone to pick with you about one thing, uh, uh, Dylan, and uh, we will get onto it in a a second because... uh, I want to talk about worst workers now, and uh, I'd like to know why that Blackwell zukov match didn't make the set when Steven Regal versus <laughs> versus Buck Zumoff did.
2: Okay, I'm a, you know what? I'm gonna I'm I'm I don't want to defend any Buck Zoomhoff match in this right now. <laughs> After what has come out of Buck Zoukoff has come out. Um, uh, as far as okay. One thing you got to keep, well, actually, two things to keep in mind about this particular match. The first thing to keep it, first of all, in, in the context of worst workers, Steve Regal is easily the worst worker on this set. I don't even think it's close. Right. I think the gap between Steve Regal and the next worst guy is massive, to be honest. Um, he's completely uninteresting. He's awful on offense, completely boring, does nothing good. Uh, you know, I mean, I actually struggle to think of a less interesting wrestler in the history of wrestling than Mr. Electricity Steve Regal. Um, so I, I let me get that out of the way right there. But two things to keep in mind. The first thing to keep in mind is I watched a lot of Steve Regal versus Bugs-Oomhoff matches because this was a very common feud uh, or, or, or match in the AWA. I mean, they feuded over that light heavyweight title for what seemed like 100 million years. Um, so that's number one. Number two, because of the fact that this was a very common feud... I I personally felt like, and I know Chris Zellner did to an extent, maybe not quite as much as me, I felt like if there was a match that was decent, and there was no compelling reason to keep it off, in other words, if there was no other obvious match that should have gone in its place, we should at least try and get one of their matches on the set. Um this was a match that I don't I'm not a big fan of it it won't be in my uh, bottom five probably uh, but it's probably in my bottom ten um, it will finish 150 it will I'm hundred percent positive of it especially now after all this stuff's come out about buck because there's no way anybody's gonna go to the bat, bat form at this point right but um I I can't defend the match in the context of thinking that it's an outstanding match. It's not a match where you and I have a radical disagreement about what we think is good. Like say Reigns versus Martel. Yeah. It's, it's more of a match that was put on the set for the, for the idea that that feud needed to be represented just because of how common the match. Now I don't think it's an awful match. I think it's okay. Um, to me, the worst match on the set is clearly the Wahoo versus Manny Handheld. It's the only match on the entire set where I really wish I would have argued against it. Wow. Uh, but I can abs- I, I'm not going to go to bat for this match on its merits. Because this is one of many matches, probably I would say in my bottom 10 to 15, where if we... If you could take you could take 15 matches that didn't make a set and swap them in, and I wouldn't really complain that much. And that's kind of how it works with any of these sets, you know. You once you get to that far, you're really parsing things, and you can you could take 15 matches that are on and put them off, uh, and put another
1: 15 on in their place, and you really don't feel like you've lost too much. If if I could make a, a weird analogy here, Dylan, would leaving those guys off of the set completely have been something like completely leaving I don't know Hercules Hernandez and off a WWF set or something like that you know
2: you know uh, I, well I mean it, it's very tough because in hindsight I can I can see a case for people saying well it's not like it was a main event feud you know like right. it, it's not like it's a feud that had to be on the set um but then again those people didn't watch all the footage and they didn't see how often the match popped up uh. In that context, it felt wrong to, leave, to not put a match on the set if there was at least one decent one. It's kind of like the guys who did the New Japan set all said, um, you know, yes, Tiger Jeet Singh sucks, but we really tried to find the Tiger Jeet Singh match to put on the set right. <laughs> because it feels weird to leave him off because he was a staple of New Japan. That's kind of how I felt about the, the Regal-Zumhoff uh, matchup. Yes, it was not a matchup that was terribly compelling by any stretch of the imagination, but to me, as somebody who did watch everything, it would have felt weird with,
4: without having one of their matches on the set. It,
1: I can understand that.
4: Chad, was that your one fifty? Uh, no, my one—it's fi- my one forty-nine. My one fifty is Cherry uh, Martell versus Debbie the Killer Tomato.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't see why you hated that so much, Chad. To be uh, I, I, just, What's I so bad about that?
4: that? Uh, I mean, to me, it's just, and I think that kind of goes into the, you kind of wanted to include a, uh, a Martell singles match, and I did like Sherry and all the other stuff she did, but that match, uh, I mean, this may sound a little harsh, but I think there's been, you know, I'm not going to go to bat for the Divas division in WWE this year, but I think, Like, the AJ versus Caitlyn match, to me, was better than that match. So I just didn't see it as uh, any good, I guess.
1: You also, uh, did did you fight for that one as well, Dylan?
4: uh,
2: I nominated it, and the way I do nominations, I may may as well kind of mention this, I can cover it very briefly. I sort of tier my nominations when I nominate a match for one of these sets. I have something that I call low-end, which is, you know, something that I think others might like more than me or something that I think is a marginal pick, uh, you know, but other people should at least watch it. Then I got something I call solid. To me, a solid nomination is a match that probably has a greater than 50% chance of making the set. But if somebody can present me with a compelling argument against it, we'll listen. Uh, And then there's something that I call easy. Uh, an easy nomination to me is a match that absolutely is going on. And if we get to the point at the end where both the other parties disagree with me, I'm going to use a personal pick on it because the way the process works, we have a few personal picks. Well, it turns out that that particular match that Chad just mentioned was actually a personal pick. It was a uh, it was it was not my personal pick, um, but it was a personal pick that was used at the end of the process. In fact, I think it was one of the last two matches on the set. Um, and I, I'm not in love with the match, but I do enjoy it as sort of a uh, uh, an awesome crowbaring performance with Sherry after she gets pissed off at this lady who looks half trained. So, <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, do you want to? Uh, no, Chad. I was just looking at my because uh, I couldn't remember what, why I rated the Wahoo Manny match that you mentioned. I gave it a D plus, which is a pretty low rating for me. Yeah.
4: Yeah, I mean, I have that match as my 139. I don't think uh, that's, I mean, that's probably, that may actually be the number two most highly contested match on the Defella driver boards besides
1: the 1225 cage match. So uh, I I wonder if we can uh, tackle this now. I I think one of the little narratives of this whole process uh, over the past year, um, Dylan, has been like... uh, it's it's kind of emerged like, I don't want to say there are two factions, but there's definitely, Uh there's definitely like Will (laughs) leading one camp and uh, our buddy Matt D leading uh, another camp. Um, And I I guess Johnny Sorrow's in there with Will and a a few other people. There's a kind of, um, I don't want to call it fetishism of intense brawling, Uh, Matt D would probably say something like that, but there's definitely a kind of level of marking out for stiff brawls on the one extreme end um, to guys like uh, Matt D who just like um, hate matches that lack structure and um, I, I don't know, like almost like if blood comes out, it may even be a minus mark for him if it doesn't make sense in the context of the match, etc. Um <laughs> Why have you put this Wahoo Manny match uh, 150 and where do you fall in that particular kind of overarching debate that has been raging for some time?
2: Well, well, the Wahoo Manny match I'm talking about, to be absolutely clear, is the handheld match. The handheld, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, 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 which I think is just, to me, it's not even necessarily a terrible match. It's just nothing happened. It's not even a match. If I was there live, I would have booed and thrown trash at them. It was awful. It was like a waste of time. Uh, it wasn't like a disaster of a match, but it just felt insulting, um, uh, and I should have argued against it, and I, I didn't. So that's my
5: fault.
1: But you
2: know, you, you, know,
1: of- you know, you hear on the uh, on the uh, party podcast that they absolutely love that match. Or, or, well, I did not say they love it, but they they thought like it would have been amazingly cool to see it, and they were generally positive about it. So, well,
2: uh, and 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 that's and and you know. Well, two
1: things. Another thing,
2: too, is that there was a bit, personally, the bigger disagreement between me and Will, I think, uh, uh, and maybe that faction, if you want to use that term, was over the strap match, which is a match you like a lot, Parv, and a match which I thought was okay, the Wahoo Manny strap match, I thought had maybe the most business exposing spot in the history of wrestling in that match, where Manny goes up to the top and then just arbitrarily decides to jump down for no reason. I don't still don't understand what was happening there. That was as bad as the Rope running spot in the Road Warriors match,
5: right. but
2: um, I my thought uh, is as far as the the factions, so to speak, which is actually not really a bad term to use. To be honest, uh, I said I've said all along. If you go, if you well, if you could go back and look. Sadly, for the time being, the '80s board of the Death Valley Drivers down. Hopefully, that gets brought back up. But it, I've said all along that I thought one of the most bizarre things about this set is that there really is not a lot of consensus. Um, th- not only are these two factions, like you say, and I think that's fair to say uh, to some degree, they're really, aside from a very small number of matches, there is a lot of deviation. And, and it's deviation that's unbelievable. Like we talked about the Christmas match. You've got some guys talking about it as top five. And then Matt going to be like, it's, you know, either, I don't think it's his 150, but it's way low on his ballot. Bottom right. five, probably. And then you got somebody like me, I think the rangans Martel match is like top 40 at worst,
1: yeah. maybe top 20. And
2: Parv, that's probably what? Your bottom 10, maybe
1: bottom uh, five? Do, do you know what? I don't know what I've, what I've rated that. And uh, I watched it like a good nine months ago now, so it's a bit hazy. Um, but uh, I really didn't like I mean, we're talking about this uh, kind of section is meant to be about worst workers. I really don't like uh, Brad uh, Renegans, especially in that early part of the '80s. And yeah. uh, well, my point is that at best he was like a really, really poor man's Bob Backlund. <laughs> That's like that was my uh, claim. And, and,
2: and I actually, I actually don't even necessarily dispute that as a as a just kind of a poor man's back. I don't even dispute that as a good descriptive. Term for him. Um, on the particulars of that match, my thought on that match uh, at the time when I first nominated it and even going through has been exactly the same. And I actually think that is an is a interesting match to point to as polarizing too, because my thought on that match is uh, Brian mentioned earlier that Greg Gagne, if he had had the exact same match uh, you know, with Kurt Henning, if somebody else other than him had, had the exact same match with Kurt Henning that he did, people would talk about it, it as a great match. My thought on Rangan's Martell was if that had been Daniel Bryan and William Regal, and a lot of ways it was wrestled, like a Daniel Bryan-William Regal match, by the way. That's why I picked those two guys. People would have called it uh, a match of the year candidate. Mm. But because it's Brad Rangan's, who I think people see rightfully as vanilla, and Martell, who I think people saw rightfully as a very babyface babyface, not the kind of guy who's going to get nasty and dirty. It was was seen as you know, by a certain group of people as being boring, lame, uninteresting, whatever the case may be. Yeah.
5: Um,
2: and, and I think that's, that's another divide in terms of the factions. You know, I think there are certain people, I think maybe the group that are very into the intense brawls, uh, and I agree with those guys on a lot of things. I don't really know that I fit into any of these groups, but yeah. maybe, maybe that group looks at, you know, uh, you know the match, the uh, matches that don't have those clearer face yield dynamics as a uh, immediate knock against the match. And I, and on a way, I understand that. But if a match is really good, I don't care. Um, but I, I, to me, the whole story of this set in a lot of ways is how insane the lack of consensus is. Because aside from, I'd say, really two matches for sure at the top of the heat where there seems to be near unanimity that they're great matches, which is the, the Bach-Hennig uh, uh, draw and the uh, bloodbath of the Rockers and Rose and Summers. Yeah. Aside from those two matches, I don't know that any match that has anything close to unanimous, uh, unanimous opinion. Oh,
1: okay. Um, right. I, I mean, like let's, let's pick an, another match, for example. Uh, the Wahoo... I think I've got Wahoo versus Bok as an A star match, for example. Um, there's no consensus on that one. I, I can't remember without looking it up. But I, I would say
2: I mean I would say that that's a match that the where the consensus is that it's good. Well, let me and I don't I don't want to out who said this, so I'll leave this off the record. But there's somebody who I talk to about wrestling a lot. And there's a lot of people who are like this who uh. W- uh Read what Matt had to say about that. Matt D, who's come up several times here, yeah. and, and said, "I live," and he literally said, "I can't respect anybody's opinion on wrestling who thinks that way about that match." Now, what's amazing is if you, re- if you, Matt will tell you, that's like in his top forty. It's not as if that's number one fifteen on his talent. Right. That's that's a match that's like think like forty forty five ish upper third. Um, but. The pe- you know when people feel strongly about matches on this set, I think it's been really polarizing. It's almost like either you're with us or against us type deal. Right. You
5: know yeah. you're, either,
2: you're either you either agree that this match is an unquestioned top ten contender, or anything outside of that
1: makes you totally insane. Right. Uh, and that it's very bizarre because that was not the case with a lot of the other sets. It's it's been a little bit strange too though. Like I mean I I don't know about you, Chad, but I find myself like. I don't fit neatly into either of those camps. I kind of oscillate, you know. I agree with some with them on some things, and I agree, like you know, my ratings. Yeah. All, my ratings are basically all over the place if it comes to that particular divide.
4: Yeah, like I it, mean, I think I think you'll have everybody will have certain matches that when you see the final rankings, you'll be like, "Huh, that does not sit well with me." Because uh, one match I'll bring up is the Bachwinkle henning match from the Cow Palace in May 2nd, 1987. That's my number three. And the reason I have that as number three is because I think it takes uh, a lot of the good elements of the henning Bachwinkle feud and adds the great story of kind of Henning finally turning with Larry Z being a catalyst and uh, has that great storytelling element overriding it. Uh, but that's a match, I know you gave it like a B par, so that'll right, maybe, yeah. maybe like you're 50 or something like that. And then the final rankings, I don't know where everybody else is, but uh, I, I, I certainly don't expect that to be number three, so.
1: Right. Yeah. No, no, I mean, there there is a kind of, but like, that is not unusual that I've got it like there and you, like, I'd say if you like pick me and like Pete, say, or like you and Pete, you you yeah. also like, there's a lot more variation on this. Uh, set than there was on uh, all Japan, where I could have yeah, basically, I could have basically think, predicted the top ten of all Japan. What
2: I think makes it especially unusual is the fact that there's so much disagreement among people who normally agree. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> like these are people. I mean, a lot of these people are people who maybe I would have like one major disagreement on a match here or there, but for the most part, we agree on probably ninety to ninety-five percent of stuff.
5: Yeah, and.
2: What's unusual about this set is that the disagreements are among people who usually agree. I think that's really what stands out.
1: Yeah, no, I and I said, but I I wonder if those sort of disagreements wouldn't have come out with like maybe they wouldn't have come out with All Japan because all the all the matches in All Japan are kind of of a piece, as it were. Whereas here you've got like. I mean, I guess it's another thing that we haven't talked about, Um, Dylan, like, for me, watching uh, All Japan was kind of like, I got burnt out real quick, because there was so much, like, it was the same match again and again and again, in different variations, the same style, Um, whereas here is really, like, variety is off the charts for this uh, AWA set. You, You know, there's so many different types of matches and types of combinations of workers, um... I mean, I don't know how many... It's probably Bok hennig or Bok Martel. That's probably the match that is repeated the most, right? But it's only like a handful of times each.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know... And and then, of course, Rose Summers and The Rockers and various incarnations. But those those three, you know, probably showed up the most. Um, But to me, I just... uh, I don't want to knock the all Japan set because I really, I I mean, it's got a lot of great wrestling in some ways it has more great wrestling than any previously released set, but it was very tedious for me to get through that set, you know, and I watch a lot of wrestling and it rarely do I find watching wrestling to be a chore and I don't necessarily want to use that term, but that's another area where I think I kind of disagreed with, with uh, Will and Johnny, maybe some other guys is I think for them, it was tougher to get through this set. Uh, and that's kind of why the party podcast or whatever came about for me, it was vastly more difficult to get to the all the set. I, I, part of it is that I'm not a jumbo fan. I mean, I acknowledge that he's a great wrestler, but he's not, he's not by any means one of my favorites, but another part of it was that that was just, it was just very, um, it felt more repetitious, you know, and this set definitely felt like it had more variety and, uh, you never knew what you were going to find on the AWA set, whereas you pretty much knew what you were going to find on the All Japan set. That's, I guess, how I would put it.
1: Right, and, and to, uh, Chad, what's your uh, d- d- feeling on that? Because I know you're you're a very big fan of the uh, All Japan of, of that period. You, you... Yeah, I'm. I'm probably
4: in the wheel camp on that. I mean, I I think if I had to pick one set or the other, I'd pick All Japan, but I don't want that to sound as a slight on the AWA set. Right. <laughs>
1: Right, I mean, <laughs> I mean, there does come a point where there's only so much of, uh, like, these guys slapping the shit out of each other that, like, you know, when you when you've sat through like nine hours of it, I can see like it did. Having said that, it took me a year to get through both of them. So, like, I, but uh, you know, that's just uh, you. You know that I'm the opposite of a of a machine when it comes to these things.
0: I don't know, Nick. Bockwinkle, Maybe the Hulk said it all. I hope, and I am fortunate to be standing here, that Marty O'Neill and Wally Carbo and Stanley Blackburn and all the cretinous humanoids are happy. Because all of you are responsible for making the Hulk what he is. You're just as sick and demented as he is. As far as I'm concerned, a man like that, there's no place in professional wrestling for him. The man's an uncontrollable, deranged human being that does not belong in professional wrestling. What are you saying? What I'm saying is Hulk Hogan should be out. He should be completely barred, suspended indefinitely, forever from professional wrestling for his actions. But I'm. Gonna...
1: Um, shall we, uh, like, uh, I think, in the interest of time, we should uh, turn our attentions to to Bock for, uh, for a few minutes here, and uh, and then think about um, the wrapping up. So, uh, Nick Bockwinkel, I think, is the one guy who comes out of this set where you can really start talking about him in terms of uh uh all-time all- greatness um and i, I did want to say a few things like we see him work so many different types of matches in this uh set you know brawls technical long technical matches um we see him work on top underneath heel face and he's basically great in every single one of those scenarios um, Where's your thinking on Bock in terms of all-time uh, greatness at this point, Dylan?
2: Well, I, I will say this: um, longtime AWA fans, of which there were very few online, <laughs> would always say Bockwinkle is is better than Flair, and Bach Winkle is the best guy ever. I, I heard that not from very many people, but consistently from maybe a handful of people, uh, you know, for years and years. Because I've been around this weird subculture for a startlingly long amount of time. Uh, but, you know, I always sort of looked at that and thought, well, that was their local guy, that was their favorite, of course that's their position. And I didn't hold it against them, by the way, it's just, you know, I sort of took it with a grain of salt. You know, this is your local guy, I would expect that. Once you go through and watch this, now, by no means am I prepared to say that Nick Bockwinkel was a better wrestler than me flair career versus career i, I you know if you force me to to pick between them right now i'd still probably pick flair um but the point is i no longer feel like that's a position that only some naive rube who grew up with it <laughs> you know i mean the, the content is there to come to that conclusion it absolutely is it would be more helpful if we had more 70s bockwinkle because you know it's the amazing, the really amazing thing about the, what we have is that this is when the guy's in his 40s and 50s. Yeah. You know, I mean, like this is a guy that, at least in theory, is well past his physical prime, and yet you could make a very strong case that from 1980 until '87, when he, you know, uh, you know retires or leaves the AWA or whatever, you can make a very compelling argument. I think that during that time period, he's as good as anybody. Right. I mean, I, I you know, and. and Again, he was not a spring chicken at that point. Um, the Martell series is, I think, if not an all time great series, pretty close. You know, it's not far off. The Hennig series, I think, it, it, in terms of just how it develops alone, is an all time great series. You know, the standalone matches that he has with guys like uh, Wahoo, obviously, which is a tremendous match. They'll probably finish in a lot of people's top fives. Um, you know, the, 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 the matches that he has with really random guys like Boris Zoukoff, which has the unfortunate uh, uh, position of having to follow on the set the the bloodbath with Rockers and Rose and Summers. Yeah. But But um, there's just a ton of diversity and the ability he has to do so many things well and make and work so many different styles. It, it's it's really shocking that somebody at that point in his career was able to do that i think to me that's actually even more mind-blowing than the discussion of where he fits as an all-time great i mean if you're asking me to hammer home where would he feel you know be in a prospective villain top 100 you know right. um i think he's definitely top 25 i don't think i don't think i could even conceive of an argument for him being lower than that and i think he'd have a very strong argument to be top 10 would I say for sure he'd be top 10? Well, I can't say that. I mean, I like a lot of Lucha. I like, I love Buddy Rose. You know, I love a lot of guys that maybe are sort of on the fringes of that discussion that normally wouldn't appear in a discussion like this with a lot of
1: people. Yeah. But I would certainly consider him for a top
2: 10. Um, I don't think it's out of the realm.
1: Do, Chad, a uh, few people have talked uh, <laughs> about Ric Flair for as long as we have. Uh, any thoughts on this particular... Uh, talking point. Well, I mean,
4: I, <laughs> I think it goes without saying that it's fairly clear to see that Bach was miles better than Flair uh, in his 40s and 50s. Right. So that's,
1: that's,
4: that's, that's the easy part. Uh, I think in the tougher part, when you start forming a all-time list, I think, you know, one thing that does go against Bach, like Dylan said, is we don't have any 70s footage. I mean, obviously, from what we saw in the 80s, if his 70s uh, even matched, if it matched or was even like maybe a step below, I think then he'd have a big-time contender for uh, for like a number one slot, possibly, actually. Uh, but we just don't have that. As far as for what we have, I think we can clearly say he was one of the top workers of the 80s. Based on the footage we have, and he's a a great worker. I mean, he'd probably be again, yeah. If I was comprising one of my top 100 lists, he would certainly be a top 25, I think, too. Uh, You know, then you start getting into very minutiae where footage can either help or hinder you. Uh, And in box case, I think sometimes it does hinder because. There's just not a ton there besides the 80s or even the first few years of the 80s. There's not a whole uh, heap and load of it there. But uh, but yeah, as far as an 80s worker, I think he's top of the
1: line. Yeah, I, I I guess the thing with Flair that Flair has got going for him is that you could probably fill a 150-match set on and you wouldn't... You could probably have a 150-match Ric Flair set and not have a single match below four stars. I don't think that's unrealistic. <laughs> it,
4: um, yeah, I mean, it's possible. I mean, like, I guess we had how many box matches here? Like, 38 or so? Yeah, uh, I a think lot think. of them good. Yeah, it was about 40, give or take. 38, Yeah, 39. so, I mean, that that's that's a great 40-match collection of him. And I don't know how much was left on the cutting room floor. I'm sure a lot of at least very good stuff. But, uh, but yeah, so that is where even Flair, like, if you compare his 80s footage... Uh, To Bach, it seems like we have more uh, 80s flair to pick from. And then, uh, you know, we don't have a ton of flair in the 70s, but we have a sprinkling. And then his 90s, while it's certainly uh, probably mostly more missed than hit, there is still a smattering of good stuff there where Bach was done.
1: I've always made the argument that anything after 89 is bonus material for flair. Yeah, but like, you know, it's just adding to the case, and anything bad he does doesn't detract from it. I, don't, I know well, that's what, a, like, a contentious point, but... Well,
2: what's amazing, what, what's actually amazing to think about in that context is that there might be people who would say that everything after 77, Bockwinkle, is just bonus. Right, that's exactly
1: that, it. That, there, there may that, be. that
2: actually blows your mind, if you think about it in that context. I mean, I, we don't know that, I'm just speculating. But, uh, you know, he was such a great wrestler... I almost feel bad saying that I don't know he would make my top 10. You know what I mean? Like I almost oh, yeah. feel bad saying that because I can absolutely see the argument for people who grew up with him thinking he's best ever. And I can absolutely see the argument based on the footage we have. If you're the type of guy who says, you know, you have to go with the footage you have. If you have a reasonable enough composite, that should be enough. You know, if you're not a person who looks at longevity or doesn't think all that stuff matters, you know, Bokwinkle's not an unreasonable top five guy. He really isn't. You know, I mean he's just so good at so much. And he's great and what was really amazing is how good he was as a face. You know he's a great heel, but how good he was as a babyface,
1: that that was really amazing. No, he no I, and and he works a particular type like he's not one of the really interesting things about the Bockwinkle babyface run is that he's not one of these guys who undergoes a personality transplant just because he's a face now. He's still the same guy, right? Yeah. I, I thought that was really cool. Um, and uh, it, it's actually something... That is actually something that you could say about Ric Flair that I, I think, personally, that he undergoes a uh, mini personality transplant every time he turns face, where that suddenly he becomes that kind of, uh, you know, the Starkade 83 character again. A bit more, sure. you know? Um, yep. No, no, well, I, I think... Uh, it depends how you d- want to do these things, but if you actually look at what Bolt Winkle does within a match, I think it's very fair to say he's a more versatile worker than Ric Flair. I don't know about better, but he's definitely more versatile in what he can do. Um, I mean, I and I'm someone who's absolutely against the idea of the Flair formula, as you know. But even uh, even allowing for all of the arguments I've made. Um, there. I I still think Bockwinkel is more versatile than Flair. Would you all would you both agree with that? Uh, I would say I would say
2: I would say Bockwinkel is a he's definitely a more logical wrestler than Flair, and I don't right. even mean that as a criticism of Flair. Right. Yeah. Um, and I would also say that I don't I think Flair has the same amount of tools in his bag, but he doesn't use them as often. Right so if you if you if you, wanted, if you define versatility as the of how often you use those tools, then yes, I do think Bachwinkle was more versatile. If you define it as the presence of the tools, then I think it's pretty much a
5: push.
1: yeah no i I'd, uh, I completely agree with that from from all of the flare I've seen, but did Chad any uh, any last thoughts on uh, on the Bock uh, flare comparison here?
4: Yeah, I can agree with that as well because I mean we have seen flair and some great uh, technical matches and some uh, very violent brawls within a couple months of each other just going through 1989. Right. So, uh, so he, I do think he is a versatile wrestler and can be an effective babyface wrestler, but I, I also agree that. Uh, One, Bach is definitely more logical and more, I guess, I don't know if I'd say meticulous or maybe more technically sound, but a lot of, uh, it feels like Bach put maybe in some matches more meaning and thought process into what he was doing than uh, than Flair. I do think, I don't want to say Flair just went out there and through a bunch of stuff and whatever stuck, stuck. But uh, but I do see Bach is very a workman, uh, thinking man type wrestler when he performs.
1: So for all my love of Flair, I do think that he is a very I've said it before, intuitive worker. I do think he's making up on the fly a lot of the time.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. I, I think yeah. Flair. I mean Flair said it himself. He. He had the expect- he, As a kid himself, as a fan, he had the expectation that guys were going to do certain spots. And his theory was you should always give the fans at least some of the spots they want. So he would find ways to work those spots into a match. Um, Bach, what I think is amazing about Bach Winkle is that he not only was he versatile uh, and not only was he logical, but he had ways of... I mean, yes, you'd see a lot of the same spots. Every wrestler's like that. But there would be just enough nuance where it felt different. And there's not a lot of guys who were that good at that. I, I, in, in a lot of ways, I would compare Bach actually to Buddy Rose. Uh, I, I think both guys, they had their stock spots. They had their things that they did in most matches, if not all matches. But they were very good at tweaking the circumstances just enough so that it felt completely different. Nothing felt like, nothing really felt like a stock spot. Nothing really felt like something that was just on repeat. And that's hard to do. You know, that's not easy to do, especially during that era.
1: One thing I'd say is how many guys can you even think of who are able to have a Mac classic match, for example, the Billy Robinson match from all Japan, an absolutely monster brawl type match, the Wahoo matches, for example, um, or uh, a match that kind of builds towards uh, you know big high spots that you know that builds logically, like the uh, like the Hennig match. It's it's kind of like he doesn't have any chinks in his uh in his armor <laughs> you, you know i i, I totally uh, uh agree with that that there's no like oh. there's no part of his uh uh arsenal that you can point to that isn't that isn't good you know he's probably a better mat wrestler was, and he was an outstanding
2: else. tag wrestler and he was an outstanding tag wrestler you know right. i mean that's not even like that's another like the saido bockwinkel tag team was a really good tag
4: team yeah yeah you know that one match is my number 8 that's a great match
2: yeah, so, and, and, that's, and that's to say nothing of Bachwinkle Stevens, which we have a couple matches from, uh, from the 70s, and it look very good. So,
4: uh,
2: Bachwinkle, I mean, that's definitely a guy who could do it all. I, and also, I, I should mention this, since we've brought him up so many times, he's probably the quintessential Matt D
1: wrestler. <laughs> right, yeah, he is. Uh, yeah, I, 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 did, uh, I did offer uh, Matt D the chance to come on this show, by the way, but he's got, you know, this... Uh, uh, I don't know if you've if you've ever reached out to him, But he has a standing like no podcast rule, right? He, oh I think- yeah,
2: yeah. I I talk, I talk to Matt about wrestling uh, all the time, uh, but uh, he he is not an an open wrestling fan. I'll leave it at that. I'm not going to give any details about his personal life, but he he's not an open wrestling fan. I'm completely uncloseted, as I've said many many times. Which whether or not that's a good or bad thing, I guess depends on your perspective but in my case it's not really made any difference
1: so <laughs> well i i uh, i am kind of like same like sort of still in the closet sort of but it's kind of with time i guess uh slowly coming out like my wife uh, at least knows that i'm an enthusiast she's uh, calling me to come off this uh come off this recording right now uh-huh. <laughs> um so with that in mind shall we uh wrap up any any final thoughts on uh, all japan chad soup Campbell,
4: all japan or AWA? Uh, sorry sorry
1: <laughs> sorry I was, uh, sorry it's, uh, it's been a long show oh well, yeah uh awa i was looking at something with all Japan.
4: <laughs> now uh, i mean i think we've uh certainly uh in some ways beat the dead horse with this one but uh the awa set was a lot of fun i want to uh yeah, you know, not not kiss ass, but I think we do have to commend Will, uh, and then Dylan, Chris Zellner, anybody that works on these eighty projects for the time commitment and the stuff they do. Because the, I'm fascinated with pro wrestling at this point in time, and. Looking back and some people say, well, that's a revisionist eye and that's not, you know, the wrestling you grew up with and that's not who they were wrestling for was somebody 25 years later to watch it. But that is what entertains me. And I do like going back and watching these matches and getting kind of a sense of what holds up and what I think were the greatest matches from a certain era. So, uh, yeah, AWA had a lot of good stuff, a lot of good variety. If you like tag wrestling, I would definitely say seek it out. If you think of Nick Bockwinkel as the WCW commissioner from the 90s, you definitely <laughs> should seek it out, and uh, you'll have a good time going through it.
1: Yeah, no, it was, uh, it was good. Well, let's put it this way, Chad. It was good enough for us to depart from our uh, NWA-only rule, right? This is the first time we've done it in 40-odd shows. Right. Um, yeah, I, I would also like to commend the uh, the, uh, the, the Dylan for his uh, obviously huge, massive amount of work he put in this. I still can't believe the '80s project exists. It's just like it's so in, like if you think about it from an outside perspective, it's completely insane. Just 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 the notion of watching 150 matches and ranking them is insane enough. But the the actual uh, committee uh, and the process that you've been through through Dylan. I think, I think that's off the far end for a lot of people to agree.
2: <laughs> well, it's off the far end for me right. <laughs> <laughs> and I watch a lot of wrestling, but uh, you know, no, I want to thank you guys for having me on and for the kind words about the project and, and my involvement in general. It's not easy uh, and it can't continue if people don't participate, but fortunately we've had a lot of people participate. And I think this, this set actually did very well. And, and I think in, in overall participation, it's, Uh, you know, it's actually done better than all Japan, believe it or not. Um, but I, I really think the big takeaway from the AWA is don't always buy the existing historical narrative that is being pushed, you know, uh, because sometimes it's not all, it's not, look, uh, sometimes what, what is being said is true. Uh, sometimes somebody really does suck or somebody really, you know, I mean, that's just, but that's not always the case. And I think the AWA set proves that you, that there is something to be said for revisionism. Um, because you know, uh, there's a reason the promotion was hot for, for so long. There's a reason that, uh, you know, the, the diehard fans in the Midwest were such big fans of it. And it's because there was a lot of good wrestling there. So, um, you know, by all means, uh, People should uh, give it a real chance and check it out. And for anybody listening who uh, has participated, the ballots, I think the existing deadline is September the 15th to send in the ballots to, to uh, Mookie Ghana, uh, who Chris Harrington, who does all the compiling of these uh, stats when things are all said and done. So uh, you've got a little bit over a month. As is always the case, they'll probably extend the deadline at least once, but you don't want to count on that. Uh, people should really be starting to work on these ballots and get them finished up and sent in.
1: Right, and uh, yeah, and I'll just say in closing that uh, if you haven't, you have to listen to the wrestling culture podcast. Uh, whatever they talk about is uh, is usually good. So uh, uh, I will send some uh, people your way, Dylan, and hopefully they will uh, take that advice. <laughs> so um, so. Th- thank you very much, everyone. Uh, it's uh, it's been fun, and uh, I I really must go now. So <laughs> see you guys. <laughs> see ya.
4: And watching
0: all-star wrestling produced by the minneapolis boxing and wrestling club in wrestling arenas throughout the world executive producer Vern ganya an American Wrestling Association sports presentation.